You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows just how important it is to be prepared for whatever life hands you. Do you have a strategy to help protect your wealth and your family? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more about what you need for your financial situation with a complimentary wealth checkup. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our money is very expensive, right, when you think about it. We spend our time away from our family. We spend hours away from our sleep. We spend, for some of us, sanity, right? And getting income into our hands, that is very expensive. We don't want to take that money and just throw it in a heap and just say, okay, like, when I get to it, I'll get to it. It's too meaningful and too expensive for that. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So having kids, right? Huge life decision. More American women are either delaying motherhood or choosing not to have kids at all, according to some new reporting from CNN. Despite the short-term plunge and then comeback of birth rates during the early years of the pandemic, overall, birth rates have been consistently trending down. And when we look at the reasons for this, there are many. First of all, I don't think that we can ignore the state of the world. The state of the world, if you have been talking to the young people in your life, it's just one of those things that I think is causing many people, no matter which side you sit on or or where you sit in your views, I think it's just causing a lot of people to think twice about whether they want to bring another life into the world at this point. But then there's also cost. Kids are really expensive. Millennials are figuring out that not only are they right now struggling to buy a house in which to put those kids, dealing with the fact that car prices are so much higher than they were a few years ago. And if you have a bigger family, you need a bigger, safer car. And then there's student debt. And millennials have a lot of student debt to pay off. This is the first time in history, by the way, that student debt has been so widespread and so significant. And one study points to the fact that women with $60,000 in student loan debt or more, those women were 42% less likely to have kids than peers who were not carrying student loan debt. This could all, when you put it together, have a huge impact on our economy. Declining birth rates can cause an aging population, a smaller number of people in the workforce, the risk of unfunded pension liabilities. If you are worried about debt, and debt not including student loan debt is also on the rise, it is possible to pay it down. And it starts by putting one foot in front of the other. My guest today, Jade Warshaw, found herself in almost a half million dollars of debt. Uh, no, an, an astonishing number. And she completely changed her life in order to be able to start the family that she's always dreamed of. You may know her from her experience co-hosting The Ramsey Show or on Instagram where she's got 150,000 followers. She's got a new book out too. It's called Money is Not 
a math problem, which I love. We're going to dig into that title, which gets to the heart of money problems and offers some real-world solutions for paying down debt. One quick announcement before I bring Jade onto the show. Did you know that the Her Money podcast is now on YouTube? It is. So don't forget to subscribe to our channel at Her Money. You'll get notified about all the new episodes when they drop. And let us know what you think about what we're putting up there in the comments. So now let me welcome Jade Warshaw to the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So Jade, half million dollars. That is just, (laughs) that's so many zeros. That is a, that's a huge burden. It's an uncomprehendable amount of money. That's right. To many, many people. How did you get there and how did you come back? Well, it is important to note it's already a lot of money, but to make matters worse, we're talking about consumer debt, right? This was not a home mortgage as a part of that. And so that makes it even more kind of scary, right? And also it makes you go, well, gosh, Jade, how stupid were you? <laughs> and I can, you know, I can say that now on the other side of it, it was student loans mostly, 280,000 of student loans, around 20 or so thousand of credit cards. We had two expensive vehicles that we couldn't afford. And we did, there was a, a townhouse in the mix that it was around 80 or 100,000, if I remember correctly. And so, yeah, it was just two people who thought they were doing the right thing with their money, right? We went to college and everybody says, go to college. And they say, if you can't afford it, take out student loans and that's fine. And no one's talking about how much more expensive it is if you go out of state or if you go to a private school and all of these things. And so we just kind of got caught up in the lies. And then you graduate and it's like, hey, you graduate, you deserve to have a car, right? And so you get a car and, you know, and if you can't fit the bill and you still want to take trips, put it on a credit card. And we did all of that. And what we had to show for it was just a massive, massive pile of debt. And the thing that was difficult, but also I think a blessing in disguise was we were newly married when we realized this. It was really only one year into marriage that we looked up and went, man, these student loans are due. Everything is finally due. We don't have any money. (laughs) And so that caused us to ask questions. When you say you don't have any money, I mean, you were working. You were a touring musician at the time. You know, money is not a math problem, as the title of your book says, but I always think of it as kind of an equation, right? There's money coming in on one side. There's money going out on the other side. If you're doing it right, they balance and there's a little bit left over to save, What was coming in and how did it get so far out of whack with what was going out? My husband and I both graduated with music degrees, and so we were both musicians. And that's kind of one of those uh, career paths where you've really got to forge your own way, right? Because it's like you don't just apply for the singing position. Usually (laughs) you've got to go out and make that for yourself. So when we first started, um, we were pulling in combined about 30000 a year, which is, you know, back in 2008, It still wasn't a good paycheck, right, combined. So that was where we started. And so when you really look, like you said, it's an equation, right? When you look and see, okay, 30,000 in, 460,000 in debt, there is zero margin. As a matter of fact, you're not even keeping up with the bills that you do have. And so the big proponent of that is when you take out student loans, you've got about a six-month grace period before those bills start becoming due. And so during that first six months, it was like, okay, I I think this is fine. And then once those student loan payments started coming, that's when the equation completely changed. And it was like, all right, we've got to make a change and we've got to start getting more income in to balance that equation, like you said. How'd you do that? I mean, for a lot of people, being a musician, like that's the dream, right? You go to school for music. My brother is a musician. He actually supported himself working in the financial services sector for the first almost 30 years of his career before he was making enough money from his music to do music full-time, which he's doing now, but God, it took a long, long time. How did you boost your income? You know, it's a journey, and I talk about it from two perspectives. A, there's the side hustle, right? Which if you're earning a fine income, right, and your your income is enough to make ends meet, but you just want extra, 
into that equation, right, so that you can have margin or you can pay off debt, then side hustling is great for you. And and it's a great way to get some extra money in. But some of us have what I would call core income problems, where a side hustle is great, but you don't want to side hustle for the rest of your life, right? A core income problem is when your core income is not enough to make ends meet. And when that happens, you've got to really be thinking, okay, what does a long-term or even shorter-term path look like to get my core income up? For some people, that's certifications, right? You know, it's applying for jobs that pay higher salaries. Or even for some people, it's moving to an area that's less expensive where you can afford the cost of living or maybe there's jobs that pay more in that area, right? Those are the things we have to be thinking about. For Sam and I, it was like, okay, these are the jobs that we're getting and they're paying this much. Is there other opportunities in music that pay more? And it turns out there are. And what do you have to do in order to prepare to get those? And so for us, it looked like really digging into our talents and just putting ourselves out there. When we became headliners, you know, in a very short period of time, and so we were able to earn really year over year, Gene, slowly but surely. It's like the first year you're at 30, and then you're at 50, and then you're at 80, and then you're at 120. And we really were able to see a very steady stair step of growth of, of our income over time. And then, of course, throughout that time, we started a business as well that brought in even more. So you've got to be able to reinvent yourself. And I always say that at the end of the day, necessity is the mother of invention. So if you need money, you will start coming up with ways to make it. Yeah. And and I love that you approached it as understanding where the problem was. Yes, the debt was a problem, but it wasn't a problem that you were going to be able to solve without boosting your income. So the focus on that in a very, what sounds like tactical way, provided the solution. When you approach getting out of debt, and I I know that you work with Dave Ramsey and the rest of the folks at the Ramsey Group, Dave and I have had a back and forth about the avalanche versus the snowball for a very, very long time. But I, I wondered, how did you do it? And specifically, when you look at that point in time where you've got the heavy-duty credit card bills and you've got to make a choice between do I put some money in savings for emergencies or do I just wail on that debt, how did you parse that? So what we did is we did keep a little bit of aside. Before we started paying off the debt, we put a little aside just for a starter emergency fund, right? Because you need something for a rainy day because something's going to happen. You know, you're going to need a new tire, whatever. So we did keep $1,000 aside. And then we started really going wholeheartedly at the debt. And in this case, we did use the debt snowball method. That's the method that I teach. It's the method that worked for us. And It worked for us because we had so much debt. And I think a lot of people experience this. When you have that kind of debt, it's like, where do I start? Do I pay the credit cards first? Or maybe I start with the student loans first? Or maybe I do the stuff with the lowest interest first? And for us, it gave it just a very clear plan. Okay, I'm just going to list these from smallest to largest. So that was thing one. And then you do pay minimum payments on everything, right? Because you don't want bill collectors calling you. You don't want to get further behind. So you've got to pay minimum payments on everything. But then we said, okay, now there's this extra money left. It was very clear. Put it on the smallest debt. It's the smallest debt. It's probably five or $600 or maybe 1000 or $1,200. You can knock it out quickly. And there's something that happens there, Gene, that when you get that first little win, you're like, ooh, like I actually did something. Like I can make progress on this. And you start seeing that happen little by little. And even with big student loan debt, right, because you pay off the little guys and you pay off the car. And then finally, most of us get to that big student loan chunk. But even when you look at those, even if you have a $30,000 student loan, right, you're making one payment. If you log in, it's usually broken up by quarter or semester when you took them out. So even that is broken into smaller pieces. So if you say, okay, I'm paying the debt, but I have this extra, you can call into your student loan company and say, hey, I want you to throw it at this specific account number on this larger debt so you can start to see it's a $30,000 debt, but it's broken into these little guys. And you can see those little guys go away very quickly when you apply that to just the principal on those small individual debts. So that's what we did. Did you tap into, I I assume that your student debt was a mix of federal and private. That's right. Did you tap into income-based repayment or anything in order to lower your monthly payments so that you had the space to pay off the more expensive private loans? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes. You know, it's a very delicate set of topics because so many people are like, Jade, I thought you said that student loan forgiveness is bad and IDRs are bad. And listen, if you're just using that to kick the can down the road forever and it's like, I just don't want to pay my student loan, so I'm going to get the lowest payment ever. I think it's a terrible idea because you'll never get out of debt that way. However, if you're smart and savvy and you go, okay, I've got a plan for my money and I've got a plan to pay off this debt. In this case, yes, I would lower my monthly payment. And Sam and I did that because the point is you're paying minimum payments on everything, right? So you want those minimums to be as low as possible so that you can have extra money to throw out your smallest debt, whatever that may be. And then when it comes time to get to those student loans, you don't need a smaller payment anymore because at that point you want as much money going towards that debt as possible. Now, there's still a small benefit in having a minimum payment because now whatever's left, you can take and throw it to the principal and it's not getting spread out over that interest the same way. So that's the mathematical side of that that I think is really beneficial. But I never want somebody to confuse that with me saying, yeah, do an IDR plan so you can just have a low payment for life. That's not the point here. Yeah, I think two things are really important to sort of call out here. First, I believe, and I think we've talked about this, that if if you've got extra money to throw against a debt, you want to throw it against the debt with the highest interest rate simply because if you look at it by the numbers, that's where you're going to get the biggest financial payoff. But I do understand what you're saying about the psychological payoff of seeing those little debts go away one by one. And bottom line, whichever way you decide works for you, as long as you can stick with it, I, I'm a believer in that. Right. Yeah, so, we just want so, you to get out of debt. <laughs> exactly. So figure out what works for you. Second, when you're talking about paying additional money on principal, and I've done this with mortgages and other loans through the years, you have to be very intentional about this with your lender. You have to write it on your check or give your lender mm -hmm. a call. Let them know where to apply this payment or they are not going to get it and they're going to just throw it against your interest and that's not going to do you any good. Yeah, that's right. And that's the hard part of this. You kind of you forget that these lenders, they're not on your side, right? They're benefiting from you being in debt. They're benefiting from you paying interest. And so if you're like you said, if you're not very clear about saying, I want this applied to the principal and especially with student loans, and this is the specific loan I want it applied to, you're right. They will just take that and they'll either uh, set it up as a an early payment, right? So it's like, oh, you just paid that one early or they'll take it and disperse it throughout the interest as a normal payment would. So you've got to be specific. As you watched the debt shrink and you started to build additional wealth, what kind of parameters did you put around yourself and your husband to build this life that you wanted intentionally? How did you step-by-step -step your way out of the repayment cycle and into the growth cycle? The biggest crux of all of our growth was our budget. Because it really is a map that gets you where you want to go. A lot of people look at a budget as, oh, it's negative or it's some kind of constraint on my spending or it's, you know, it feels like, oh, it's just like a punishment. It's exactly the opposite of that. The budget gives you so much freedom. It really is a map and you're in charge of it. If you say to yourself, my goal is to get out of debt, setting up your budget is what takes you there. If you say my goal is to be able to invest 15 percent of my income, then again, the budget is what will give you the framework and the blueprint to actually get there. And so for us, the budget was everything regardless, you know, because we teach a series of baby steps, right? So regardless of what baby step we were on, the budget really was what informed us of how to get there. And it helped us to look at our spending and say, OK, if our goal is to save three to six months of expenses, what do we need to do in order to make that true? And so each month we would pull up that budget and write out the numbers. And with every dollar, it's great because it does all the math for you. Every dollar is a budget I would use. And you put your income in and then you're putting all your expenses, all your variable stuff, all the things that you want to do. And with whatever money is left, you say, OK, I've got $500 left at the end of the month. That's what's going to savings. But then you can ask yourself more questions. OK, I've got 500 left. What would it look like if I had 700 left? How would that change, you know, the math? How would that change the projection of this? And it's fun to kind of play with those numbers. And it's the same thing even with investing. OK, I'm investing 10 percent right now. What would it look like to invest 15 percent? Where can I find that 5 percent in the budget? And so 
it always comes back to a budget. If we're not putting it on paper or even digital paper, right, the numbers are just floating around in our head. And I think for a lot of people, number one, it's not accurate, right? Because we're just thinking, okay, I should have enough money to do this and I should have. And it's just kind of this hypothetical thing in our mind. And if anything, for me, that just creates anxiety because it's this feeling of I'm doing it, but I'm not really doing it. And it's all theoretical, right? But when you get it on digital paper and you see the numbers and you see, okay, I have a plan. And as long as all I have to do is stick to the numbers and I'm the one who set the plan, no one is controlling me. I created this. There's just such a sense of of peace that comes with that. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's what we find in our finance fix classes, which is our process for taking people through figuring out where their money is going and then making conscious decisions about where you'd rather see it go in a way that lines up with your values and your goals and your dreams. And it works to bring down the temperature, bring down the level of stress and anxiety that people are feeling. Because although numbers aren't comforting for everyone as much as they are for you and me, and I find looking much more preferable to not looking. Once you look, then you know. And before you look, you just don't know. And I think that state of unknowing is really, really stress-provoking. You and I are talking an awful lot about numbers. We're talking an awful lot about math. We are going to take a very short break. But when we come back, I want you to explain to me, after all of this numbers talk, how money is not a math problem. Before we take this break, I want to just remind everybody, I hope that you'll check out our new podcast. It's called How She Does It, hosted by the fantastic Karen Feinerman from CNBC. She recently had Melody Hobson on the show. Melody is one of my favorite, favorite people. She is a self-made investor, one of Forbes' most powerful women in the world. You can listen in and hear her incredible story. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Preparing for the unexpected tomorrow is what gives us the peace of mind to live a life of freedom today. Protecting your family is about so much more than just saving and investing. Having a conversation about your wealth is an important part of your protection puzzle. Explore your options with a complimentary wealth checkup. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney or call 833-304-PLAN. We are back. We're talking with Jade Warshaw, author of Money's Not a Math Problem. Okay. I don't buy it. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. We talked about all those numbers before, and we talked about sticking to a budget and creating a plan and checking in and all these things. But by and large, I see this all of the time, Jean, uh, whether it's people calling into the show, The Ramsey Show, or social media. It's people saying, Jade, listen, I know I'm supposed to live on less than I make. I know I'm supposed to have a budget. I know the things that I've been taught, but I just can't seem to do it. I make a budget and I bust it every single month. Or I know that I'm supposed to save money and I just can't. They really feel like they can't do it. And that's the point where I go, okay, This goes beyond the numbers. There's something going on upstairs in your thoughts, in your beliefs, where you don't believe that, A, that you can do it. You don't truly believe that maybe a budget can work for someone like you. You believe that you're probably the exception to the rule. There's a set of beliefs that are driving your behavior. And I say it all the time. I'm like, listen, if behavior is the car, belief is in the driver's seat. Your belief is what drives your behavior forward, whether in a good way or a bad way, right? And so that's why I wrote this book, because we've all been there. I mean, my husband and I paid off $460,000 of debt, but I never want anybody to think it was, okay. we just started at the starting line and we went forward and we did everything perfect and never had any setbacks. That is completely false. There were many times that I didn't want to stick to the budget and didn't stick to the budget and felt that I couldn't save money. And so therefore, I didn't save money. And I say to people, if you are going to commit to a financial money journey, chances are you are going to have to commit to a mindset journey as well in order for it to stick, right? Everybody has done a diet where they lose weight and then they gain it right back because there was something in their psyche that they didn't address, right? And money's the same way. 
What do you find the most common psychological changes that people need to make are? Where are those limiting beliefs? So in the book, Money is Not a Math Problem, I approach it from the, the lies that I used to believe. I go through five lies that I believed and then five truths that I replaced it with. Because here's the thing, just because we believe something doesn't mean it's true, right? We all have areas in our life that we've believed forever. And then you realize like you had that sinking moment where you're like, wait a minute, that's not true. And you just, it's like deflating almost, right? Because you've stood on this. And um I think it's a little different for everybody, but my hope with this book is that I think you're going to see yourself in some of the lies, but then in other ways, you're going to start to expose whatever that is for you. I think we all kind of have this ticker tape, right, that kind of runs in the background all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. And what I'm hoping to do is kind of to get you to look at that ticker tape and read what it says, right? When there's that moment when your spouse brings up the spending, right, And you're just like, I don't want to talk about this. This is so frustrating. Like, why does he always have to talk about money or why does she always? Right. And what's making you do that? Where is that coming from? Somewhere you're believing that this is frustrating or this is stressful or it's, you know, it's triggering you in some way. And so this book is there to help you go, Okay, what's deep down inside? Where is that trigger coming from and why do you feel that way? So where was it? We don't have to talk about all five of the lies, but where was it coming from? from for you? And what are the lies that you think are most universal? Yeah, I think the first one is that budgeting is a punishment. Budgeting is some form of punishment. You were bad with your money. And because you were bad with your money, you got to, you know, shake your finger and you've got to go on a budget. And so that's no fun, right? No one wants to feel like they're sitting in timeout or that, you know, they've been punished and now you you have this budget and that's the stigma that's attached to it. So I think a lot of people, culture or whatever, it makes you feel that way. And if you're looking for, quote, financial freedom, well, a punishment doesn't seem like the way to go about that, right? And so really untying all those tangled knots of why we feel that way. For me, that came from childhood memories of we have to stick to a budget and we've got to stick to it. And I always heard that, but there was still never any margin or freedom with money. And so there's just kind of this dichotomy of, well, which one is it? Does the budget give freedom or is the budget locking you down? Right. I think just don't call it a budget. I mean, call it a spending plan. Call it when it's a spending plan. I mean, call it a budget. If you want to call it a budget, it's the same thing. But If it's a spending plan where you get to be the planner of your spending, which, by the way, is what a budget is. That's right. (laughs) It just sounds as if you have a little bit more autonomy. But your budget exists to give you autonomy, to give you the freedom to decide where you're going to use your limited resources. Everybody's budget is limited, right? Everybody only has so much money and you all, we all have to make choices about where we are going to use those resources. That's what this exercise is all about. That's right. I love that. I always say a budget is custom organization for your money. You're just organizing your money. That's it. And you get to decide. You did this with your husband. Did he have different lies than you had? I'm sure he did. You know, I think for my husband, it was a little different. Probably the lie that relates most to him is this idea that, okay, a budget, that's just me listing my bills and my expenses. And as long as I pay those, I'm good. Everything else is up for grabs, right? And if I have margin left over, I don't need to budget for that. It's the whole treat yourself, right? Treat yourself. I can just go have a great time. And I combat that because I'm like, no, a good budget gives every single dollar an assignment. Not to say that those assignments are negative or bills, but if you have $500 left, yes, you can go get your hair done and get your nails done and and plan for a trip, but assign it. Like, plan for that. Don't just leave it. The analogy I give in the book is, you know, your budget is like a closet, right? And there's compartments and a place for every single dollar and every single thing. You don't want it just in a heap, right? In the corner. (laughs) You know, it's like if you went to Louis Vuitton and bought nice clothes, you wouldn't take them in your closet and just throw them in a heap in the corner. You would say, no, no, no. I'm going to hang this on the hook. I'm going to put this on a rack. There's a special shelf for this. And our money is the same way. Our money is very expensive. 
right? When you think about it, we spend our time away from our family. We spend hours away from our sleep. We spend, for some of us, sanity, right? On work and getting income into our hands. That is very expensive. We don't want to take that money and just throw it in a heap and just say, okay, like when I get to it, I'll get to it. It's too meaningful and too expensive for that. So let's take the time and let's go through it and put it in the compartment it deserves. There's a compartment for takeout and a compartment for groceries and a compartment for clothing and all the a compartment for daycare, all of those things. And then when you look around, you go, wow, my money is very nicely organized. And I see that there's a place for everything. And that gives us peace. So you just brought up daycare. And we've been talking about the frustrations also that people have when they feel that they can't afford things. We started the show talking about how expensive kids are and that that's one of the reasons that people are deciding either not to have them or not to have as many of them as they might otherwise. How did you deal with planning for the cost of a family? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I'd start out by saying that Whatever decision you make, for those listening, it's totally personal to you, right? No one can say, don't have kids until you get out of debt. Don't let anybody tell you that. Don't let anybody say that you've got to have X, Y, and Z before you start a family. However, for Sam and I, we made the personal choice. We looked at our financial situation and said, we don't want to go forward until we pay off this debt. That was our personal choice. And I'm glad we made it because I had in my mind this idea of what I wanted it to feel like, both from a just mental and spiritual standpoint and financial standpoint, what I wanted it to feel like when I had children. And I knew that for me, I did not want to be under the stress of debt and payments and how am I going to make this work and all of those things. I wanted to be able to stay at home with my kids for the first couple of years. There were just a list of wants and priorities that I had. And I I imagine that most of the women listening to the show, if they're interested in a family, they feel the same way. And so you've got to look at your situation and go, okay, what is true for us and how do we make this work? And so for Sam and I, what was true for us is, okay, we've got to get out of debt and we've got to do it within a timeline because my hope was I could have children the natural way and the clock was ticking for me. So I'm like, I got to get this debt paid off. So we were able to get the debt paid off in seven and a half years. And we had it all down on paper. I said, okay, I want to be ready to start trying to have kids by the time I'm 33, 34. And we ended up having our son when I was 35. And then, you know, we had another child when I was 37. And so that was our timeline. And I realized that for some people that seems late in life, but for us, that was our life. And so that's the normal for us. And so I would challenge people to say, The normal is what you make it. Don't hold yourself to whatever culture says or whatever other people say. You create your own normal, and that's that. The other big stumbling block for people these days is a house. Interest rates, mortgage rates are higher. I mean, they've come down a a smidge, but they're a lot higher than we experienced for the last decade and change. There's no supply on the market or or very little, depending on where you live, that has boosted prices into the stratosphere. A lot of younger people are saying, how am I ever going to do this? What do you say to them? The thing I say most to people is just remember this is a journey. Everything that we're doing is a journey, even homeownership. And there was a time where it was probably easier to come out and get something closer to what you truly want, right? Let's Let's acknowledge that. But that time is not here right now. And so now we have to embrace the fact that real estate, it's a ladder. And so some of us, we're going to start with purchasing a condo. And then it's going to look like taking that and parlaying that into a townhouse. And then it's parlaying that into something that's a single family that's a little larger. And we just have to be willing to go up that ladder and understand, hey, it might not be exactly what I want it to be, but I'm still building equity and I still have the ability over time to see that dream. And so just understand that this is a long-term play for a lot of people, but you will get there. And it is a shift in expectation. And I'm not going to make it sound like that's easy. That's very difficult. It's hard when you had something you wanted and you thought you were going to be able to get it. And then things shifted and you're like, dang it, I'm not going to be able to get exactly that. It is very hard to bring our expectations down. 
But if you're willing to do that, I think that you can still find happiness. I think that you can still find a home that will suit your needs. It may not be everything you thought it was going to be, but over time you will get there. Yeah. And no home ever is, by the way, everything that you thought it was going to be. Otherwise, there would be nothing to renovate. And what's the fun? (laughs) What is the fun in that? Jade, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for being here. The conversation was fun for me. I appreciate it. Me too. Thank you so much, Jean. Absolutely. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. When it comes to retirement, women want different things. We want safety, security, stability, and the ability to live life on our own terms. One way we can achieve all of that is with an annuity. If you're not familiar with annuities, the concept is that essentially you take a chunk of money and turn it into a paycheck that you can start drawing on when you want to, next year or next decade. The ParityFlex multi-year guaranteed annuity available from Gainbridge offers security and flexibility at a time when women need it most, retirement. A guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit means you'll have a consistent income even when your account balance is zero. Plus, you'll get guaranteed returns at 5.95% APY. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for important information. This is a paid endorsement. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining me. Hey, Jules. How you doing? I'm good. Tired. February, you know. Busy work week. Very. The February moogies, right? Yeah. February is just, if we could just fast forward from February 1st to Valentine's Day, Mm -hmm. and then from Valentine's Day to April, I think that would be good. Although we would miss your birthday. Yeah. I was about to say, you forgetting something? Uh, (laughs) Never, never. I know we've got a couple of important questions today, so let's just jump right in. All right. Our first question today comes from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hello, I'm currently trying to get a jump start on taxes, and I'm trying to figure out if it makes sense to pay TurboTax to report my side hustle this year. I have a side gig tutoring through Wiseant, a website that connects students and tutors. All of the tutoring was performed virtually since COVID started, and I usually tutor online from my home office. The website handles all billing slash payment processing in exchange for a cut of tutor's fees and issues a 1099 if a tutor's yearly pay exceeds $600. I have tutored for about seven years through the site and typically exceed $600, but I only made about $135 last year and thus will not get a 1099. In 2022, TurboTax advised that I carry forward expenses I incurred for my home office. I am keeping my tutoring profile active in case I need it as a backup source of income, but I don't plan on tutoring anywhere near as much as I used to. My primary job has increased my pay, so I make more per hour working additional hours at my day job than I would tutoring. Thus, I can't see myself earning $600 plus from Wyzant ever again. Am I right to assume that it will cost more to report my earnings than I will actually save by reporting? TurboTax requires paying for an upgraded program to report this income. Am I legally obligated to report this as income since the expense that carry over exceeds my earnings from last year? Thank you for this show. I binged this show last year as I was preparing to become a first-time homeowner, and it truly helped me make me feel more informed with my choices with my money. I am truly grateful, and I recommended it to so many of my friends. Well, first of all, thank you for those really, really nice words. We're glad always to be helpful. Congratulations on the purchase of your home. And I don't think you're going to like what I have to say. 
because here's the deal. The IRS requires that you report all of your income, even if it's less than $600, even if you didn't get a tax form for it. And as somebody who has been going through an IRS audit, not of my taxes, but of my retirement plan, let me just say it is not something that you want to go through. It is a pain in the neck. And so I would absolutely tell you that you need to report this income because one of the things that we know increases your chance of being audited is when you fail to report all of your income. I mean, some people don't understand that the IRS gets a copy of all the work that you do. The IRS knows how much income you earn. And if you fail to report it, that is a very, very easy audit trigger. So I would say go ahead and do this. Go ahead and pay TurboTax. You're right. They require you, if that's the program that you decide that you want to use, they require you to use premium TurboTax if you have self-employment income. It costs $129 for the federal version and $59 for the state version. If you feel like that's too much, there are alternative tax software programs. There's one called Tax Slayer that has really good ratings from folks like Forbes Advisor, and that one is about half the cost. But if you've been using TurboTax consistently, it may just be easier to keep using a format that you are familiar with. And then what I would do next year is just not tutor, right? If it's going to be more of a pain to you to have a minimal amount of income, just don't do it. Keep your profile active in case you need it, but turn down the work until you want to turn this income stream back on. I just don't think it's worth the risk of an audit to not report this income, however small it might be. And that's my two cents. Straightforward. I actually don't think I'm alone. I think people are afraid of the IRS, right? And and people are definitely afraid of the IRS auditing your taxes, and we don't want to get it wrong. And this is a pretty easy fix. Yes, it's going to cost you a little bit of money, but you can just basically chalk up the money that you made tutoring to pay for the cost of this year's TurboTax and start with a clean slate for 2024. Sound good? Sounds great. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next question today comes to us from Catherine. She writes, Hi, Jean. First, I very much appreciate your newsletters, and I read them every week. That's so sweet. It is so sweet. And, you know, I don't know that everybody who listens to the podcast on a regular basis actually gets our newsletter. Our Her Money newsletter comes out twice a week. It's free. We just redesigned it, so it's got a really fun format. If you go to hermoney.com and just hit the subscribe button, you'll get on our newsletter list. And I love our newsletters. There's one particular section that I love most. We've added a section of things, little tips to save you money or save you time. And I especially love the time-saving ones because I feel like they end up saving me even more money. So um, for anybody who really likes to clean out a closet and organize things and get their day in order, I, I think that you'll like it. All right, let's keep going. Let's continue. Anywho, kudos to me. For the first time in my adult life, I am almost entirely out of credit card debt. This took a good five years of serious discipline. Did I mention I'm very proud of myself? Smiley face. <laughs> she should be. This is so good. So good. Within the next month or two, I will have an extra $300 in my budget. I already save $50 a week to my savings account as an emergency fund. I don't own a house, and I am not convinced that this is the time to do that. So I'm not sure I want to save for a down payment versus other options that could help me in retirement, which is about 13 years away. The only debt I have is left on a car loan, which I just got last year, and it's at a good rate through my credit union. 
I am part of a state pension program, so I don't currently have an employer retirement account, but I do have a personal IRA and a Roth IRA accounts at Schwab, which definitely needs some more attention. But I'm also interested in starting a stock trading account that I could manage on my own and start learning more about investing in individual stocks. With only 300 extra a month to spend, what are my best choices? Thank you for your insights. First of all, 300 isn't an only. 300 is a significant amount of money, and it's an amount of money that could make a really big difference in any goal that you have, any goal that you have on your list. So here's what I would do. The first thing I would look at is that retirement. Um, It's not that far away. So go into your state pension, sign on to the portal, look at how much money you think you're going to be receiving from that pension, as well as the balance in your IRAs, um, a 4% chunk of that each year. Sign on to Social Security if you get Social Security. Some people who have a state pension get it and some people don't. And add that to the total and ask yourself if that's going to be enough for you to live on. If it's going to be enough for you to live on for the foreseeable future through retirement that could last you three decades, then you're pretty good. And we can take that $300 and invest it in a diversified stock portfolio. I also want to point out you could put the 300 into your IRA or your Roth IRA each year, and you could invest in individual stocks through those portals. That might be the best choice. Sometimes we get confused. We think of IRAs and Roth IRAs as investments. They're actually buckets. They're the holding buckets for the investments that you put in them. And often we put in investments like index funds and ETFs that provide us with a lot of diversification. But you have the ability to buy individual stocks as well. As for learning about individual stocks on your own, I have a perfect solution. You have to join us and by us, I mean me and Karen Feinerman, for Investing Fix. This is what we're doing. We are teaching hundreds of women how to invest in individual stocks. And Karen has been doing this her whole life since she graduated from college. She is an expert in equities. She breaks it down and explains how to pick good stocks. And we do this in plain English. We look at two different stocks every time we meet. We look at them over four dimensions, how they make their money, what we like about them, what we don't like about them, and whether we would buy them at a particular price. And then the whole group votes on what to add to our group portfolio. We're not pooling money in this club like many investment clubs do. Instead, there is a monthly charge for being in the investing club, but the first month is free. So um, please join us and try that out. But you um, a lot, but a lot of people are then going and buying these stocks for their own accounts and doing really well. I've been buying our investing picks as we've been going, and my account is making some pretty good money. I'm very, very happy with that, and I'm happy with what I'm learning. So I hope that you'll give that a try. Let me know if you decide to do it. Let me know, Catherine, if you're the one who asked the question. And I hope that I see you in class. Um, For more information on Investing Fix, go to investingfix.com. That's Investing Fix with two X's. Or just check us out at hermoney.com. And if you've got any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com or leave us a comment on our YouTube page. We're at hermoney.com on YouTube. Thanks so much for doing this, Jules. Yeah, absolutely. And we are going to take a quick break. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. We are back with your money tip of the week. The SEC recently approved Bitcoin ETFs, exchange-traded funds. And since that approval, Bitcoin has faltered. But many people are still wondering, is it time to get in? That decision depends on a number of factors. If you're planning to jump on the Bitcoin bandwagon, make it for no more than 1% to 2% of your overall portfolio. And more importantly, if you invest via a platform that automatically rebalances your portfolio, keep close enough tabs to make sure it doesn't do so based on your Bitcoin investment. Because even a very small percentage in a Bitcoin fund can cause a lot of overall volatility in your total portfolio. As an extreme example, if Bitcoin were to fall, to zero. And we're not saying that that's going to happen. But if it did, an automated system would continue to rebalance into that fund until the entire portfolio was gone. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jade Warshaw for explaining how we can begin to change our deep-rooted beliefs about money and get out of debt for good. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. And by the way, so do the rest of our listeners. Have you heard? Our show is now on YouTube. If you subscribe, like, and hit the notification bell, you can stay updated on our latest episodes. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalidis. The show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, hosted by Karen Feinerman, for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented and powerful female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.